Welcome back to Can You Hear Us? My name is Madeira. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm joined once again by my lovely friend and co-anchor, Monica. Hi, Monica. Hey, Madeira. Good to be back. Happy 2024. My name is Monica and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. We have not been on for a while, but that's okay because we've had a wonderful start to the year with a brand new team and brand new themes to come across. So I'm super excited about the whole entire season, but I'm especially excited about today. How about you, Monica? Super excited. Also a bit daunted. It's been a while since we've been in academia, Madeira and I were talking about it. We're ready. All right. Well, before we begin, as always, Can You Hear Us acknowledges that we do not represent all Black, Indigenous women of color, that we can only speak from our experiences and perspective, but we strive for inclusivity in both our conversations, our team, and our guests. We're always open to feedback from our listeners. And also a special thank you once again to the LSC Department of International Development, especially the Communications Department, Deepa Patel, you rock, Maya, you also rock. And with that, I'll hand it over to Monica. Thanks, Madeira. So quickly introducing today and in this episode of Can You Hear Us, we have the honor of speaking to Dr. Lama Tawakal um, about all things related to the Humanitarian Development Nexus, or HDN, imperialism and colonialism in the Middle Eastern and North Africa region, otherwise known as MENA or MENA. And yes, this is an extremely important topic at the moment, especially as both international development organizations take on more programs and projects that are focused on providing humanitarian assistance. And as we live in a world defined by continuous and ongoing crisis, whether it be the effects of climate change and civil unrest, based on that, how stakeholders choose to respond or what position they take within these crises have historic roots in the ideologies that were born out of it. And can you hear us? Or at can you hear us? Sorry, we think that it is important to understand these roots, um, colonialism, imperialism, or even the concept of free markets within capitalism still inform the decisions today taken by all stakeholders in international development. And luckily, we have an amazing guest to speak on these topics today, much better than I have in this paragraph. So on to you, Madeira. Thanks, Monica. Flaman Tawakol is a lecturer in international relations and global political economy at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. Her research explores capitalism and the global political economy, with particular focus on the power and politics of development aid, the social inequalities it produces, and its impacts on states and marginalized populations in the Middle East. Lama received her bachelor's and master's degrees in political science at the American University in Cairo before pursuing her PhD in political science at Queen's University. Her research focuses primarily on Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt, where she examines how power dynamics operate within a capitalist and global economy, including within the politics of development policy and aid. Furthermore, Lama's conceptual framework centers on how international development and humanitarian aid projects have extended and reproduced Western imperialism. Welcome, Lama. We are so excited for today's conversation, and thank you for coming on Can You Hear Us today. Uh, thank you guys so much for inviting me, for having me, for the more than generous introduction. Um, I'm really, really excited to get started on the conversation, and I really hope that you and the listeners find it worth your while. But yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, I think we will definitely feel it worth our while. And uh, I guess we should just kind of get started. So we're going to be covering a lot of ground today because, Lama, you cover kind of a wide reaching set of topics 
that ground both the foundations of international development, but we'll also be talking about humanitarian assistance and how that overlaps. And so we'll kind of split it into, I would say, definitions, concepts within those definitions, and then also just some more of your positionality that you come within academia and, and interacting with them. So we'll talk about imperialism and colonialism and capitalism, all that good stuff. We'll talk about how international development, humanitarian aid, their relationship between the two and how the humanitarian development nexus operates. And then we'll kind of start talking a little bit more about your research and how um, it sort of informs our conversation around displacement and reclaiming space. And then we would just love to talk to you about how you ended up in academia in this world. So I am going to stop and offer the mic over to Monica with our first question. Thanks, Madeira. So on Can You Hear Us, we love to kick off with definitions we're very big on it. It's a habit we picked up four years ago and we're still doing it. And it also just helps us situate ourselves as anchors. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, colonialism is defined as a broad concept that refers to the project of European political domination that began in the early 16th century. While imperialism is a term that refers to economic, military and political domination that is achieved without significant permanent European settlement. Before we dive deeper into your research, our first question to you is, in your opinion, do these definitions highlight the key differences between the two concepts and the processes that proceed and stem from them? And how would you define imperialism within your research researchers' concept? Thank you very much for the introduction to the definitions. I think I've been too long in academia. I always start everything with a definition now, not just my written work <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> um, and like with any terms, these definitions, these terms, imperialism and colonialism, are the definitions for them are never uniform. They're always debated, they're always contested between different scholars, and sometimes they're even used synonymously. So this is just to say that definitions can change. Uh, personally, I differentiate them between uh, I differentiate between them, excuse me, based on direct control. Uh, as one of the major differences. So, for example, colonialism would be the direct control over certain geographical uh, regions or countries. So think about British colonialism um, mm. in India, for example, right. where they had legal control, territorial control, um, etc. cetera. Uh, whereas imperialism can be much less direct. So it's still a form of domination, to be sure. It has, still has economic and political aspects, sometimes uh, um backed up by direct military uh, um, action. Um, sometimes imperialism can also be cultural. Uh, and a lot of people speak about this, but it's not necessarily as direct or explicit as um, colonialism. Uh, because I work with the concept of imperialism specifically, I will go into a little bit more detail as to what I mean by it. So as a critical or Marxist, uh, for lack of a better word, political economist, um, so I understand, excuse me, I understand things through the global economy, so the global political economy, which is capitalist. What do we mean by capitalism? So capitalism basically is when the economy is based on this constant quest for growth and profit. So we're producing to produce, we're producing to accumulate more, to constantly grow the economy rather than, for example, to merely survive or just to fulfill our needs. So within this capitalist global economy, imperialism is one of the relations of that economy. So I understand it as an unequal relation between states within that economy 
uh, which creates a global hierarchy. So certain states are subordinated primarily uh, in the global south and exploited to serve the interests of this global capitalist economy, which is typically or has historically been backed by backed up by and pushed for by advanced capitalist states in the global north or primarily uh, the West, or that's at least what I focus on. So while there is a lot of debate going on about whether US power is waning, whether it's decreasing, there are emerging powers, rising powers, etc., uh, I focus on how the U.S. still dominates huge aspects of the global uh, economy to a large degree and uh, is still leading what I perceive as Western imperialism today. And I think some of this will become clearer and less abstract throughout the rest of our conversation. Thanks so much, Lama. Actually, it's funny, as you were speaking with your definition of these concepts, it reminds me a lot of hard versus soft power which is also what we talk about sometimes in the international relations side of things. And especially with imperialism having that almost cultural component that is indirect as well. And to speak about America as a case study, but I think that's what's so fascinating is in the 50s, America with its hard and soft power got us to the stage where, you know, today it doesn't matter where you are on the globe. I think most people recognize maybe certain TV shows or certain foods or certain concepts that are almost purely American, but are now global. I think it's really interesting and good that we still have this perspective of looking at how the US and other Western advanced capitalist countries operate within imperialism. From my perspective and education, when we were learning about imperialism, it was almost this like historical concept that, you know, we did, countries did do this, UK did do this, US did do this. And so I think it's really important that we're kind of bringing it to the surface as being still current. So another concept, Lama, that you touch on, and I think it's almost like the core of your research is is the humanitarian development nexus or the HDN. Here we have a small definition or description by UNICEF, which is that the HDN is a result of the demand for both humanitarian and development efforts to be more efficiently connected and in essence to have an efficient outcome as well. And it is also an approach that prioritizes the collaboration between humanitarian aid and other international development players to work towards achieving that collective outcome, tackling humanitarian issues. So in your opinion, how does the HDN present itself in reality in comparison to the description we just provided? Thank you so much for this. So before I answer, apologies, uh, but I will again quickly provide a basic distinction so that um, our listeners, those of them who might not be as familiar with these different forms of aid can sort of follow. Uh, so basically humanitarian work or humanitarian aid, sometimes humanitarian relief, is meant to be apolitical, impartial, and focus on fulfilling survival needs, emergency needs on a short-term basis. Uh, it's delivered by such impartial organizations like the International uh, Committee of the Red Cross, for example, some UN, uh, UN agencies that deal perhaps with refugees or things like that. And often they work parallel to the state because it's deemed this, this emergency. So think of aid uh, uh, or relief activities that immediately follow the eruption of war or a natural disaster or things like that. So these are people focused on bringing, say, food and shelter uh, uh, to earthquake survivors, for instance. On the other hand, development programs or development projects and activities 
are longer term. They focus on more structural changes, uh, a lot of them at the level of the state. So, for example, new infrastructure, policy changes, things like that. Uh, and they're carried out by development actors. So the World Bank, for instance, whether through grants or loans, in coordination with the states themselves. So this aid is channeled through the state, not in parallel to it. Um, when the Syrian conflict erupted uh, in the early 2010s, and there was a massive uh, refugee influx uh, into neighboring states, uh, primarily, so Turkey, uh, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, um, etc. I focus specifically on Jordan and Lebanon. The HDN was presented and promoted as this new framework to bring together humanitarian development activities and, like you said, uh, Monica, enhance the coordination between them so that they're not happening uh, chronologically, they're not happening in distinct spheres, but they're happening together. And this was presented as a means of offering more sustainable and longer term uh, responses to uh, the refugee influx in Jordan and Lebanon, both to fulfill the needs of refugee communities, as well as these host states and their own populations as well. That said, what I show in my research, uh, actually, is that the HDN is fundamentally a development-led framework and agenda. So despite uh, um, how it's presented of this coordination, um, it's fundamentally about development responses to the refugee influx and its challenges and its pressures. This focus on development, uh, I argue, in the HDN shows how these development aid and projects actually help to reproduce and deepen imperial relations and imperial inequalities and capitalist interests in regions and areas like the Middle East. So through the support provided to these host states through the HDN, so HDN projects um, in these countries, Development actors like the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in this case, for example, uh, development actors that before this would have never been involved in what is seen as a humanitarian issue, right, refugees. They come in and they say they present these refugee response frameworks that promote neoliberal policies and projects as the solution. And I'll talk about neoliberalism We'll talk about it in, in more detail in a little bit, but they present these solutions that actually reinforce existing inequalities. So they make these states and these these host states and their populations even more dependent on global capitalism and unevenness. On the other hand, benefiting from these policies and these projects are West are these donors, the Western states that are pushing for them, but more crucially, private actors and investors. Uh, both from the West and in the West and from these countries, but also from within these host states and their ruling classes themselves. So even though these host states are actually relatively disempowered, they stand to benefit and gain a lot from these imperial relations. Um, I'll leave it there because I know we'll cover the, less, uh, the rest in, in the next set of questions. So over to you guys. No, thanks, Lama. I think that that really speaks to the issue that we see about, um, in particular, when we're talking or more within the development space, there's a lot of discussion about sustainability and, um, in particular, sustainability surrounding crises, uh, whether that that be a natural disaster versus war or civil unrest. And I didn't know if you had kind of a particular example of how 
this specific notion of um, the way that development kind of continue development uh, development ideology in a way continues to push um, inequalities. Do you, do you have an example from your research that might be um, useful to kind of give for listeners? Um, yes, and forgive me if this is going to be a slightly lengthy um, response, uh, but <laughs> so I'll start again a little bit by going slightly back to what I mean by imperialism in this case. So what I'm trying to say is that in this particular case, Western countries, specifically under the leadership of the US, but not exclusively because we see actors like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, these are the imperial powers in this equation, in this relation. In other words, they are the more powerful parties politically, economically, who largely dominate and influence the current global economy or capitalism. And they work to ensure that this capitalism continues to grow including by maintaining these global hierarchies and subordinations and dependencies. Uh, this benefits global capitalists or private sector companies, private investors. Uh, they can take different forms, many of whom are primarily located in these global North economies, but as I briefly mentioned, not exclusively them. So uh, um, if, you've, if you've ever studied capitalism, you kind of know that capital or, or capitalists are global. So yes, they could be, they, they could be headquartered somewhere, but they are necessarily transnational and global, uh, so that even capitalists within these host countries in Jordan and Lebanon could very well be benefiting from these policies and projects. So essentially, this is what I'm trying to highlight here, is that in its constant quest for growth, uh, uh, capitalism necessarily involves exploitation, so that in this particular case, or at the global level, certain economies and actors need to exploit and subordinate others in order to maintain their growth and profit. So to make this a bit less abstract, what's happening here is that through the HDN, development actors and donors are doing this through the promotion of neoliberal policies and projects as the solution. Neoliberalism, very briefly put, is a form of capitalism that has been dominant globally since the 1970s. And it's characterized by a focus on everything related to the market. So it's very market-based in the sense, yes, all capitalism is, is market-based, but this takes it a step further insofar as everything is better off in the market. So private act actors are more efficient. They offer better solutions. They have more resources for most problems. So give them everything. And that includes everything, including health, education, and other public services like water, for example, which my research focuses on. So they will um, they will preach sort of social spending cuts, austerity, create credit, which ultimately creates more debt for people, privatize, etc. Uh, and in doing so, Neoliberalism also institutionalizes these market-based logics and mentalities at different levels of the state, so that even when the state isn't necessarily taking a step back, it is being run according to market rules, uh, where profit and cost efficiency are prioritized over everything else. In the responses to the refugee influx, we see this in three, like I group them into three different ways. And I'll try to be brief with this. <laughs> uh, the first one is that they say they emphasize infrastructure, massive infrastructure projects as the solution. So let's say dams or wastewater treatment plants or things like that. 
This is presented as a way of bolstering these countries' public services, in this case, water. Uh, but actually, when we look at it more closely, they present they they open up new markets and present these profit opportunities for both donors and investors. So they're actually a business opportunity uh, for a lot of people. So private investors from around the world, as well as companies uh, based within these countries, many of which are affiliated with uh, some of the ruling classes, other companies elsewhere. So capitalists uh, everywhere basically. And at the same time, they fight this political front or legitimacy fixed to show that the government and donors are actually trying to respond to the challenges. So they can see that the services are being impacted and they're doing something to respond. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that they also, the HDN also emphasizes new methods of financing these method pro uh, these massive projects. So they they say that there's this humanitarian financing gap whereby humanitarian needs far surpass the funds that we have available, even through donors uh, like the World Bank. And they propose instead blended financing, which basically uh, uh, to put, very simply brings in grants or loans from these public development banks like the World Bank, but they blend them with money from private sources, so private investors, things like that. Uh, they also establish public-private partnerships, which basically bring in private companies at different parts of the project, either to, say, operate the project, to manage the project, to so as contractors, essentially. Now, Again, the justification here is efficiency and resources. These people know what they're doing. They can do it better. Uh, the state doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the resources. Um, but what, be that as it may, what actually happens is that this deepens pre-existing relations. So it deepens pre-existing debt relations, for example, between these donors who provide these massive loans uh, to these host states to fund these projects and maintain some sort of leverage over them throughout the duration uh, of the loan. Uh, they reproduce this dependence because the state con is constantly dependent on these flows of aid uh, in order to fulfill the services and then eventually service that debt. And they also give private investors and companies a bigger role and a direct say in what are supposedly public entities and public goods. So water infrastructure projects, water utilities, et cetera. The last point is that these market, these market-based policies or these neoliberal solutions to the refugee influx or the challenges of the refugee influx are then institutionalized at different levels of the state. So when the private sector becomes more involved, or if you want the private sector to become more involved, the private sector exists for profit. That's that's its whole point. So you have to make it worth their while. You have to make the investment work, worth it. You have to incentivize them. So state institutions like water companies, water utilities, start to look for ways to be financially sustainable, to be cost efficient. That becomes their main goal. They start to become run like corporations, like companies, rather than public service providers. So one example of this is that we see a massive, uh, and of course, they're, they're receiving technical assistance from these donors, says that this is the way to go. And one of the solutions that we see is that they raise tariffs. So the argument is always that current tariffs do not really match the cost that the companies are being, uh, are bearing. So we have to raise these tariffs. 
in order to uh, uh, be financially su uh, sustainable, in order to be able to survive, etc. Uh, but you don't see the other side of that, the, the access aspect. So even though these raised tariffs could make accessing these services much more difficult for some people, particularly marginalized groups, ironically, including refugees themselves, uh, who are the intended, the so-called intended beneficiaries here. Um, there are so many examples, but I, I won't go into, into them, but it's these under these three main umbrellas. That was super helpful to understand. It sounds like Western imperialism in particular is really fueled by capitalism and neoliberalist policies and ensuring that those are oversought. Um, it also kind of talks about how like the intersection of how this sort of relationship fuels how certain outcomes come out. And it's so interesting because I think that there is right now, you spoke about public-private partnerships. There is a huge push to believe that private partnerships, private sector is the way to go for sustainability, that that is the surefire way. And it's the idea that, you know, in these private companies that, you know, are global, can seem local, are the ones that will be able to continue this, you know, work, so to speak. And because of that, uh, they will continue to increase profits, but they're working on something that, you know, a public good for our listeners is something that everybody usually needs. <laughs> uh, it's not like something that you you can't live without. Everybody needs some sort of shelter, water, electricity. And so to privatize these kind of companies, it's out of the interest of the actual needs of the people. It's more about these corporations. Um, and that really does affect the impact and also the advice that's given by um, the private sector. Yeah, and just to sort of jump on that very briefly, I, I get asked this a lot, but the private sector yeah. could be more efficient. They have the resources, they have the experts. I'm not necessarily debating that, but I am right. pushing people to think about what their ultimate goal would be. So a company or a private sector entity cannot survive without profit. That is, again, the, the whole the whole point. Otherwise, they'd be a non-profit, non right? So... I just encourage people to think about that. If one of these public goods is run by or, or managed by private companies, and at some point there is a contradiction between their profit motivations and whatever goods or services they're providing, what is going to, to take precedence? And that's the key thing. What is being prioritized? Yes, things aren't black and white, but we need to be looking at who is benefiting and which interests are taking prominence in these projects, in these policies, et cetera. And you're right. It's not just about refugee responses. It's it's in a lot of development work today. It's super interesting, Lama, because in other episodes, we usually touch upon intersections because international development is so multidisciplinary, so multi-sectorial, even the individuals that come into it, everyone has a different background, humanity, STEM. It's very mission-oriented in that sense and borderline project-oriented if you want to give it that neoliberalist touch. But I, I just think it's fascinating because we're always grappling, whether you're in the public sector or the private sector, there's this constant tug of war between how do we not stay siloed, but how do we also leverage those differences? And I have a very simple question to you, but I want to preface it with something a bit silly, which is, 
you mentioned water and my question is essentially why water why did you choose water because in my mind when you talk about water it reminds me of that little table you get when you first start studying economics maybe in high school or at university about excludable and rival goods as well as sustainable goods and water is always seen as well it's a public service it's a public good right it means anyone can access it at any time but with climate change uh with geopolitical instability there's many other components in reality that actually i would say contradict that theory and your research highlights that really well and it also adds that component of the hdn being that intersectionality and questioning it all. So yes, why water? Not silly at all. So the reason basically is that, so part of the response of the HDN and the rationale for it is that donors are not just going to throw emergency aid at refugees because that scene is not sustainable because you can't do this forever. So the idea is to build the development of these host states so that they're able to manage their needs as well as those of the refugee populations. So in the two countries I focus on, in Jordan and Lebanon, water is one of such key public services for different reasons. So in, in Jordan's case, Jordan is one of the most water scarce countries in the world. So some figures put it as one of the three most water scarce countries in the world. So even before the, the latest refugee influx of, of Syrians, Jordan's already had an issue of, of water, particularly quantity. Uh, so with the added surge in population with the refugees, that became even more exacerbated. So that's in Jordan. In Lebanon, the issue is not necessarily of quantity, but of quality. So the Lebanese water uh, uh, sector has over the years, and due to uh, uh, multiple reasons dating back to the Lebanese civil war um, in the 1980s uh, uh, and 1975, ending in 1990, uh, and then followed by uh, uh, also, for example, the 2006 uh, war with Israel, uh, the water sector, like other public sectors in Lebanon, is very dilapidated. So the water is of poor quality, very poor quality, that most Lebanese resort to private uh, uh, water. Uh, and that's why it's also one of the big things that come up when you talk about development um, in Lebanon, particularly in the public sector. Even when we're speaking about water availability and who has control over it, and it being, you know, whether it be the state or a private entity that's, you know, a multinational corporation that is kind of influx. And it even reminds me of when we're talking about at the beginning of COVID and the issues with supply chains. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about how, you know, capitalists can be global and, mm -hmm. and probably would agree that like globalization happened because capitalism had to you know, in order to have specific connections. And they're all connected in that regard. Um, and so it just reminds me of just how, um, you know, during COVID, we just had a huge issue with supply chain because everything was so globally connected that we couldn't get vaccines. We couldn't get PPE to uh, people that needed it. Uh, you know, and, and the reason those that really faulted were those that didn't have the money to purchase the, the, the roots essentially. Um, and how that usually falls on the countries that have been exploited through imperialism in that regard. And, um, and so I think, I think that they all, when we're 
even already we're discussing, you know, humanitarian sort of ideas. And so I feel like this is a great segue to some of mm-hmm. what Monica wants to talk to you about. What's also really interesting about the case of water is that it's it's one of the hard things and it kind of comes back to what you were saying, Monica, about the different types of, of goods, uh, uh, so to speak. But it's one of the things that are historically been the hardest to outright privatize. So it's not like education. It's not like even healthcare. Uh, Power like water is one of these things that there have been different efforts to privatize it uh, in different places around the world, and it's one of the hardest things to privatize. But I think what I kind of show in my research is that it doesn't have to be like the utility doesn't have to be handed over to a private company for there to be privatization. Privatization, if we if we broaden uh, the definition a little bit in terms of like the private sector having a large degree of control. Uh, or operation along private lines happens in many different ways and public-private partnerships, for example, are one way to do that. Thank you, Lama. So yeah, essentially going back to our student roots, which I think bears well for this episode, we have a little case study question. The turn of the century, China and Indian were seen as quote-unquote emerging giants, and they have experienced this shift essentially from receiving aid and being aid recipients to now providing aid. So we wanted to touch upon this and see, have you witnessed this change, for instance, in Jordan and Lebanon? And if so, how? So this is a bit of a tough one. (laughs) I don't think that change has happened in Jordan uh, and Lebanon. So I don't, to my knowledge, they haven't been aid donors um, in any context that I am aware of. Uh, But of course, these examples, like we see China's a big one now. a a huge development uh, donor. We see it elsewhere in the Middle East. So the United Arab Emirates, uh, for instance, and other uh, um, uh, Gulf Cooperation Council countries are becoming donors. Uh, I don't know much about these cases in detail, though. So what I'll say is that uh, what I'll do is that I'll kind of try to answer your question from a more of a conceptual angle rather than, than based on the cases themselves. I'll come back to my my definition or conceptualization of imperialism as a relation, capitalism, and the idea that it's a relation is very, very important. So as a relation of capitalism, it's basically one of the ways that capital capitalism manifests itself or takes place uh, as it constantly expands. So for instance, private companies from the West want to expand their markets, they want to grow their profits, and one of the ways they do that is through their states. But it is... And, and in a lot of cases, like I said, the ruling classes of these imperialized states themselves benefit from these unequal relations and the cycle continues. But the reason I emphasize that it's a relation is because relations are always dynamic. They're always dynamic and they're always up for change. They're never just given, uh, which is why this should be sort of my message of hope, <laughs> uh, is that relations can thus be very much disrupted Um, and resisted. So for example, one of the World Bank projects I looked at in Lebanon was called the Bistri Dam. And this project was cancelled before it started in 2020 because of massive pressures and protests, um, largely by a local movement called Save the Bistri Valley, but that ended up being this huge lobbying power, so to speak. Uh, Now, how does that relate to your question, Monica, is that because it's a relation and up for change, 
it doesn't mean that you're stuck, that these countries, these imperialized countries are stuck in this uh, um, position forever. Yes, there are structures to the global political economy that kind of inform how certain actors act and, and create boundaries and constraints and all of that. But boundaries and constraints don't mean that things are necessarily set in stone, that you're bound to be a recipient of aid forever. Uh, and that's why we see certain countries change that and change these relations to different, to new relations and new configurations. How and when these relations can change, though, and what forms they actually take, whether it's a progressive form, whether it's a different form of the same relation, depends on the social configurations and specific context of whichever case we're looking at. So uh, if we're talking in the context of states, do they suddenly become very rich, for example, like uh, uh, this is a very simplistic thing, but like through oil, do the political forces and power change? And so the priorities shift. Um, does something happen that gives them a bigger bargaining power? Do they just say, you know what, we're done with being dependent and we're going to do things our own way? Um, and we we saw that happen. I mean, think about the post-colonial moment when a lot of global South countries um, were gaining independence and and these these relations at the time were shifting. So these colonial relations, things that people hadn't seen coming were suddenly happening. And there was a lot of historical context for that that I won't necessarily go into it. Um, but yeah, this is, I guess, my sneaky way of, of diverting your question <laughs> so that I can respond to it because I'm not familiar with these cases. Like you also mentioned, everything's open to interpretation and is dynamic. So absolutely fine. <laughs> to speak to your uh, comment about global hope or hope about all of it is that things are dynamic and changing. I'd love to like kind of touch on some of the work that you've done about reclaiming spaces. Um, and so I know that we in particular looked at a case in Cairo that you've kind of illustrated and how the city's right violation plans, which were formerly known as Cairo 2050, 2052, um, they sort of sh created shifts visible in the city's demographics. Um, do you mind just talking about that and how these like key outcomes um, kind of changed the urban tissue of Cairo and, um, you know, were very structural in nature? Yes, for sure. Um, sorry, just about the earlier point about like the AIDS and stuff. If people yeah. are interested in this, there's just massive research about yeah. what is called South to South aid rather than North to South aid. And there's a lot of debate within it about, as you kind of touched on, the interests that are being addressed with that. Within that, there is a whole lot of interest, particularly now in China and the Belt and Road um, mm -hmm. initiative. A lot of scholars yeah. are kind of writing about how there is sort of this geopolitical struggle through the aid between the West and actors like China. So if people are interested in that, it's it's really fascinating. I just don't know more about it. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Coming back to uh, Cairo. Yeah. So basically in that, in that piece or in that research, uh, what I argue is that these urban development plans um, of Cairo, when you look at them more closely, very similar to the HDN actually, really prioritize private interests uh, with the backing and benefit of the state to the disadvantage um, 
of other uh, populations very often more marginalized and lower income populations already. Um, in some cases, these populations end up being displaced from the heart of the city in locations that are um, economically very valuable. Uh, and that's why I'm saying, like, I argue in that piece that the state is basically reclaiming uh, those spaces because of the massive material value they hold uh, to the detriment of this population of these populations. Now, of course, Cairo is a huge mega city, and this hasn't happened everywhere to the same degree, uh, but it is definitely a pattern that we see with these urban development projects. So the development of informal settlements, as well as other uh, urban projects within the city. Um, and if that pattern continues at its, as it seems to be doing, uh, then we, we will see a very noticeable effect um, uh, over time. You also kind of talk about how the way that these plans have sort of decided that depoliticizing the city's core and the idea is that within Cairo they're expanding the city limits to up to the desert and how that is um, you know the construction of that is sort of pushing towards reclaiming but also uh, sort of taking the power out of those more material values that are there within within those things leading up to the desert to being um, part of the state. And so mm -hmm. I, yeah, I'm just curious, like what was the opposite of being that? Like what would be politicizing the space? Like do you, like what, what would have they done if it was that case? So the point here, based on a lot of work by other uh, um, scholars on Cairo and, and Cairo's urban development and fabric and all of that, uh, but there's been a trend that we are seeing in the, I would say, hyper exploitation of, of the of the profit value and, and potential uh, um, of the city. And we see this in a lot of cases. So the new capital that's being built and who it's being built for, like when you see skyscrapers and, and these very expensive buildings and things like that, you have to think about who they're being built. Uh, sort of built for um in the case of 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 central cairo uh where these informal developments are being uh, these informal settlements excuse me are being demolished and their citizens displaced uh, uh, predominantly to the outskirts of the city what is also being built in their stead are these massive uh, um residential and and commercial developments with global for with global and foreign uh, private investors uh, involved things like that now indirectly this already excludes certain people so that's the depoliticization element and directly we see it where huge spaces where crowds have historically gathered and protested like Tahrir Square for example are now extremely securitized it's very hard to go in and newer neighborhoods and cities on the outskirts where people are moved to uh, are not planned with these public spaces or squares right it's it's you're making it actually physically harder for people to gather uh, so that's the depoliticization I mean here to politicize it, I think, would be to place the person at the heart of it. So rather than building or redeveloping the city for these private investors to capitalize on the city's potential uh, for profit, these these huge skyscrapers and and residential buildings where that will 
probably remain empty for for a big uh, portion of the year probably you build with these citizens in mind so uh one of the neighborhoods that was eventually uh, demolished and its its residents displaced for example started off with participant uh, discussions so these inhabitants were actually in included and involved in the discussions of what they wanted the neighborhood to look like and what they needed and what their priorities were uh, for uh, the redevelopment of that neighborhood. Now, these these participatory approaches never really went anywhere. Uh, and then eventually the project, the, the area was demolished, like I said, and it's now a, a, a huge commercial and residential project. Uh, but that would be my view of how to politicize it for lack of a better word, but I wouldn't even use that. Uh, I would just say it, it would be for the people, like for the inhabitants, the city should, I mean, it's it's quite funny actually that we have to emphasize this, that the city should be for its people and the, and the residents living in it rather yeah. than anyone else. Yeah, it seems a little bit uh, wrong <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and to be, and you know, not to be to be frank about it um and it also kind of reminds me of the idea of um development projects and frameworks that are kind of pushing against this so i mean even intersectionality to some point some level of feminism you know some level of um you know how people are tackling the environmental crisis uh you know it feels like sometimes the development framework treats these sort of participatory ideas as being a checkbox, but not a direct action, um, because it's nice to be seen from the funding donor perspective. They want to see it, but it's not actually what they really want to have done. It's not really a structural change that is specific to people. And so um, it's a little, it's a little, it's, it's sad. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, that, you know, that the private sector, that push for the private sector to make it more commercial and economic in turn, isn't really helping the people out, but in, but is helping a different goal. And it's what you've said is that if we continue, like, think about what the goals of these projects are is super critical. Um, and especially for those that want to go into development now, like, I think that that is something that, you really have to set for yourself as practitioner and also as an academic to really think through. Um, so yeah, no, it's just interesting. Just to go on with all the definitions we've asked Lam, we wanted to touch on the word revitalizing. We've also talked about it previously and more specifically revitalizing in the context of um, an urban space. So uh, looking at the processes that and the structures that improve cities. And of course, we acknowledge that this can be very, very context specific. Um, and also that we're, we don't want to put you on the spot and ask you to give us the answer for all urban areas. <laughs> but we wanted to know your opinion on that word and what does it actually look like in practice when we're talking about revitalizing a space through the HDN? This is one of the questions that critical scholars generally dread. It's like, you've broken apart everything, so what do we do? <laughs> it's like, I haven't really thought that far. I've just told you what was wrong with all of it. <laughs> uh, but in terms of revitalizing 
a space. And I think I'll, I'll come at this with or without the HDN. I mean, uh, um, my answer to this, I I would say applies regard like whether it's it's an urban development project like a improving a neighborhood or whether it's a development project to host states to improve their services uh, because revitalizing a, a space or a city can be so like can mean so many different things um and to me the answer when i think about this is put again put the people and the inhabitants at the heart of whatever if we're thinking about a strategy or a project or something like that then have that be sort of the compass and yes of course you can never I mean in a city like Cairo even a smaller city you can never really fulfill everyone's dreams essentially that's not necessarily what I'm saying but a city planned and built for the people even with the consultation of the people wow uh, would look very different than developments that are built for uh profit essentially um and i haven't really studied this but this is anecdotal because i was talking about this um with a friend a few days ago so many cities talk about the homelessness problem and housing crises and things like that but many of these cities when you look at it have so many vacant units that it's not necessarily and i'm not i'm not necessarily arguing that you match people with with housing units that's not what i'm saying but what i'm talking about is is we need to recalibrate our minds when we're thinking about it it's not a housing crisis because it's not for lack of houses or lack of space it's about how these houses are managed and how the city is managed and what is being prioritized so who's falling through the cracks and and who's falling through the cracks because of that so for me a revitalizing redeveloping the space uh, would be from that just to put the the people at the heart of it these are the people who are meant to benefit from and and live in a city what do they need they probably need public space they probably need green space they probably need access to good services um things like that uh, but we actually see a lot of so some cities do that, but we also see a trend towards the opposite of privatizing pre-existing public spaces. So privatizing beaches and parks and all of that. And when you privatize, many people, predominantly marginalized groups, will lose access or will find it harder to access um, these things. So I guess that would be my overall uh, uh, response, whether it has to do with addressing the refugee uh, uh, challenges in Jordan and Lebanon or redeveloping a city like Cairo. That incredibly well answered and we do appreciate that some of these questions are very big questions as well so to put them on one person and to get one perspective or one answer it's, it's already a lot so thank you but just to touch on what you've said about the homelessness crisis I think for me my mind goes to the respectability chain and the degrees and the hierarchies that go with certain social issues and how we compute them um, on an individual level and then on a collective level, which is what's reflected in policies, infrastructure, and the choices we actively make and pursue. So that's what comes to mind because you touched on homelessness. And like you said, it may not be a homelessness crisis. It's more about an urban habitation management situation, but also where does homelessness rank in the respectability of the issues 
And how does it manifest? Is it something that's seen positively by people living in a city, which includes them, but we don't tend to think of it that way. Based on that, segueing back to, to your research, uh, we did want to touch on the displaced populations, if you're open to develop that a bit further, in the context of geographical spaces, neighborhoods, and reclaiming spaces. So in the context um, of Cairo, where I've uh, uh, looked at this issue of displacement and urban development I didn't really speak I'm just going to give this disclaimer is that I didn't really speak to these inhabitants so my focus was primarily again on the policy and strategies being uh, implemented and then analyzing the potential impact uh, to these uh, displaced communities and also relying on uh, some of the work of, of NGOs and other uh, organizations on the ground who'd spoken to these um residents uh, basically what happened is because again many of these projects were focused on the profit potential of these areas it was no longer profitable or beneficial to have these communities uh, within them so many of these informal settlements or low and which obviously tended to be lower income um neighborhoods with replaced like with were replaced like i said with these uh, uh, plans for massive residential and commercial developments that could attract private investment. Um, and these original inhabitants were displaced or relocated. So in some cases, depending on, on the neighborhood, so it depends on which informal settlement, some people were given options, either uh, a financial compensation or being relocated to other uh, um, areas. In other uh, uh, places, people weren't really given much of a choice. Um, in other neighborhoods, there was actually contestation and resistance. So back to this idea that things aren't without resistance. Uh, but ultimately, once you're displaced, you're displaced. And even those who were given alternatives, it was on the outskirts of the city. And it's so some advocates of these projects will say that they were given actually better houses, uh, safer houses. Uh, in some cases, bigger, things like that. Um, and I'm sure that some of those relocated were happy, I'm I'm certain. Uh, but some of the problems that I kind of point to, and based on other people's research and talks with these people, is that they weren't just displaced from their homes, but that these neighborhoods also served as community spaces. So they were also displaced from these uh, uh, community-based neighborhoods. A lot of these people worked in the neighborhoods around or in central Cairo and suddenly found themselves uh, on the outskirts. Um, so my my issue here again is that these these populations were displaced as sort of collateral to the needs and exigencies of private capital in this state. Uh, and in this case, also the, the the interests, the financial, the material and political interests of the Egyptian state. Uh, they weren't being moved because it was better for them, um, basically. Uh, and in that research, I kind of show how this 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 in itself is of interest to uh, uh, capitalism and the economy because they become even more exploitable. They become a, a cheaper uh, uh, labor force, and they also become a bargaining or disciplining chip for other workers, because if other workers do not conform, do not conform, um, they do not agree to even lower wages, for example, there's such a huge labor pool that they can be so easily replaced. 
And when you've been cut off from these community ties and these uh, uh, workspaces and, and all of that, you're probably, probably more exploitable, but nothing is ever all bad or all good. And it's always, again, about what are the interests mm -hmm. primarily being served? Who is benefiting and who is losing predominantly? Or what are we getting these gains at the expense of? So these fabulous new roads in Cairo, for example, yes, I use them all the time and they've made my commute so much easier, for instance, but at what cost? And there's always a cost. Yeah. And I think it's really good that you have a sense of your positionality within this and the way that you decide to declare it with your students. And I think that is a great segue because we really did want to touch on how you ended up in the world of academia and especially um, touching on those things. And for our reader, our, excuse me, our readers, our listeners, and even on our team, we have a lot of, obviously we're with LSE, we have a lot of students that are currently in university and they are potentially trying to decide if they want to go down the path of academia. And so we did want to have some time, and especially as we're getting towards the end of the interview, to kind of talk about that with you and um, your experience. And so our first kind of question is sort of what you've said is like, you know, uh, I I feel like when I entered development, I think the question that you continue to ask is like, what is the goal? Like, what is the interest behind it and who's benefiting is definitely one of the reasons why I decided to go in because as somebody that is Black and Indigenous, that was a perspective that I did not see. And I felt that there were a lot of decisions being made that weren't hearing the voices that I am usually surrounded by. And so I'd love to hear like what that was like an aha moment for me. I would love to hear like your aha moment um, and why you decided to become an academic. Um, I've thought about this. I don't know whether there was an exact moment necessarily. Uh, I'd always had an interest in, in sort of uh, research as an undergrad. And before that, so I started my undergrad uh, studies in 2011 fall of 2011, um, which made, a couple of years ago made me sound young. Now it sounds makes me sounds old. But anyway, um, I'd always been interested in politics from like a social justice aspect. So when I watched the news with my grandparents, for example, and things like that, that was always fascinating. And then, of course, in early 2011, what happened was the protests or the uprisings in Egypt and across the region that sort of solidified uh, that interest. Um, and then throughout my undergrad studies, I was always very interested in research. Um, I enjoyed it, which is not something that a lot of people can say. Uh, and I really enjoyed that feeling of, of getting to know more about these topics that interested me, about how the world works, essentially. Uh, um, and I am... I am a bit of a nerd, obviously, uh, but I guess it became even more obvious when I was writing my undergrad thesis that I really, really enjoy doing this. And on the other side of things, um, for a lot of many different reasons, the the paths to pursue like a political or a politics related career, I wasn't really interested in working in international development because of a lot of things that I had studied. I was a bit uh, disenchanted uh, by it. I didn't want to go into 
uh, diplomacy or like government um, essentially. Um, so this was a way of, okay, I actually really enjoy doing the research. I enjoy understanding how things are and that knowledge in itself is valuable uh, because then perhaps at some point it can impact the rest. So. No, great answer. And I also feel like um, <clears throat> you touch on the idea that you don't, you know, there are many different ways that you can kind of touch on the things that inspire you. you there's no one way pathway. And I think that is something that we try to sort of express to our listeners is that, you know, there are many different ways that you touch it, but it's, it is your choice. And I, the best way to do it, honestly, is to really inform yourself <laughs> about how you want to operate in this world, whether it be, um, you know, from a advising, uh, advising and also, you know, influencing or like right in it in practice. I'm just in awe because it seems like so natural for you kind of just fell into it but as someone just having a conversation with you and to our listeners bearing in mind we just meet our guests on the call the amount of knowledge and passion and the exceptional work you do of breaking down something so technical and jargon heavy into a conversation still maintaining all that interest it's really exceptional and it makes me so excited that you know you're not only a researcher but now you've all you're also an educator even though they're both in academia they may be very different roles so just a very quick question but what were your biggest lessons learned so far in each role or like what have you enjoyed the most what i've learned in each role as a researcher it's that you can never know everything you can never read everything and I mean I tell my students this but I struggle to remember it when I'm when I'm working on a project or a paper and it's always like okay well I'll read some more on this bit before I start writing but you can you can never really know or read everything and on one point that keeps you humble and motivated and opening to and open to learning from so many different people in different settings not just in academia I mean, I really, really enjoy my conversations with my students, uh, for example, in seminars or uh, uh, if they're writing, if I'm supervising their dissertations, because every person has such a different perspective and a fresh outlook on these topics. And it makes you these conversations help you think about them differently. Um, and also, of course, on a logistical note, I'm a perfectionist. So there needs to be a point where I can tell myself stop reading and start writing you're you're not going to exhaust every single thing that's been written about this um so that's a i mean it's a work in progress i haven't learned it entirely but i try uh as an educator as a lecturer the part i'm i enjoy the most so i really enjoy the early year courses so first years for example when you're in Firstly, because they challenge me to really, really simplify um, what I'm saying. Uh, I think it's very easy to get lost into a lot of this jargon, a lot of this stuff when you've been doing it for so long and you forget what it was like to be this first year freshman uh, uh, in politics 101, right? Where you have no idea what a state even means. Um, so I really enjoy that because it challenges me but also because it's it, there's something really uh, rewarding and exciting about seeing people digest this information for the first time whether or not they agree with all of it and and develop their own ideas about it um 
so yeah and also working with people who are working on their theses or dissertations and just watching that journey um is really really rewarding and and it makes me very grateful to be a small part of it you mentioned that um, experiencing with your students especially in the early years when they first experience a certain word or notion or concept and them digesting that is is one of the things that is most gratifying to you but I wanted to follow up on that and ask if sometimes they have deconstructed it to a point that it makes you think about it again being like have they challenged certain things that you've put out that have actually lasted and lasted the test of time in a way that the next year when you explain the same concept it will be different definitely I mean I can't think of a specific concept uh, or term but one thing which I mentioned uh, earlier about this idea that it's not black and white uh, this is definitely developed through my conversations uh, with students first as a teaching assistant uh, when I was doing my PhD and then uh, um, in my own classes because I think as researchers and critical researchers, there are things that we take for granted, like neoliberalism on the, is on the rise, it's the root of all evil, uh, 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 et cetera. I'm obviously uh, 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 joking a little bit, but <laughs> you guys know what I mean. Um, and then when you talk to people who aren't necessarily as immersed in it, they start to say, but actually it's not that bad because, or things like that. And I think these types of conversations have sort of developed this in me where they're right because things aren't black and white and and they could be good in a way um so for example in one of in one of the classes i assisted for as a phd student it talked about corporate social responsibility and how it was still based on private interests and profit etc uh which is really interesting but it was also through these conversations with students that we could say okay so Corporate social responsibility initiatives could actually be doing some good, but let's put this in in a broader context and again see the benefits and the costs and and all of that. Um, so that's one thing that that's definitely come out of my engagement with with students, I think, um, and also just because students are very like the students are te I teach are very diverse and come from very different backgrounds, so they'll they'll make connections to examples that I'm not familiar with. And that's really interesting because like these things don't happen in vacuum, right? They they take form in different places in different ways. And it's really interesting to hear about that. Yeah. And I think um, what, what you've said about having the access to different uh, students that can offer feedback from diverse areas is something that I think really goes with our final question for you. Um, and I also want to say that uh, you being a perfectionist, I also see myself as a perfectionist, and I think also Monica does too. And I have a theory that a lot of um, women in color um, really have that same feeling because of imposter syndrome and worried that you're not going to necessarily be able to like conform or be the best at your job. And so you overperform. And so I think that this is really fitting because obviously we really gear this podcast towards Black and Indigenous women of color that are interested in this kind of idea. And 
within academia, academia and in specific academic institutions, they're usually really historically excluded from them. And so I just would love if you're comfortable sharing like what kind of advice you would give to someone that is um, BIWOC who would love to become, go search for their PhD, become a grad student. Um, and, you know, how do they like find, how do you found your community? Um, because I think that that is really critical for success um, as well. Definitely. Again, a tough one. <laughs> um, I know, all we have are tough questions. <laughs> one of the key things is to not be afraid to bring one's perspective and one's experiences into their research and their academic journey. And this applies for everyone, not just people from certain backgrounds, but I think they will resonate uh, with people from cultural or, or ethnic backgrounds that are not necessarily um, the majority where they're studying or where they're living. Um, because at least in my experience, uh, these experiences and these insights are actually how you find what you enjoy and what you're most passionate about. And they give you unique insight and contributions if we're thinking from an intellectual or an academic perspective. And yet, so just not to be afraid to show that because I think in many cases, people are even subconsciously sort of, uh, 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 they feel that they need to adapt or they need to tone that down or they need to... Um, uh, I mean, I know that at some points I felt like I was talking about Egypt too much, but that's kind of what I knew, right? That's where I'd lived and and uh, uh, studied my entire life before I went to do my PhD in Canada. Uh, so that would be a, one of the things. And then about the community, I would just say try and find people that you can relate to, both at an on an intellectual and a cultural level. Uh, a PhD experience specifically can be very alienating and I was told that but I didn't really understand what that meant until I experienced it uh, so you will need that supportive circle uh, or social or, or supportive net basically for each other so sure I had amazing emotional and mental sometimes financial support from my family uh, and also my friends outside of academia. But I don't think I would have made it through the PhD without those friends within academia uh, who shared that experience, who knew exactly what I was going through. And I could share with them thoughts and notes and drafts uh, about work, but also just about the experience uh, because they were in it too. So Madeira, you mentioned imposter syndrome, for example, and that's a very real thing when you're doing your PhD. It's very different if you talk to your mom or your non-academic friend about it. Uh, they're going to be really supportive and they're going to try to walk you through it, but it's a very different support from someone who's probably going through it themselves and who also can offer work, uh, can offer their support on your work and offer their thoughts, uh, can be there for writing a, a group, for example, things like that. Uh, so just people who who you can relate to makes a huge difference. Um, and yeah, these people for me are still in my life. Uh, I still cannot 
sort of survive uh, without them. And and other than being just friends, we're also each other's sort of work or academic uh, support. And we still exchange drafts and we still sort of talk thoughts out together and things like that. So I'd say that's the most important thing. You You need to be comfortable enough with the person as well. Yeah, great. Yeah, find your people, find your people, find, your, don't be afraid to share your voice. And um, yeah, support systems are definitely what you need, both internal and external from whatever sort of idea of job you decide to take on. Um, I think that, that is great, great advice. Um, Lama, thank you so much for talking to us today. It has been really, really fun. I feel like I've learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and also I I feel like I've also been validated in a lot of my feelings <laughs> about about the ways that you we look at especially you know as we see a lot of crises unfold um in front of our faces Gaza Sudan um uh Congo um you know like I I really think that what you've brought today has really helped me understand and I hope that listeners feel the same way and I hope that you enjoyed speaking to us as well as much as we have um it's been an absolute pleasure um and thank you so much and um before we like let you go we do this thing where we kind of create uh well we don't create we have a wheel of questions which you will see on your screen and it's just kind of to set the tone from you know we've talked about a lot of heavy stuff on this podcast and we like to set it on a light foot before we end um so are you okay if we play the game and yes please okay wonderful all right all right i'm gonna give it to monica monica you want to show the wheel so today's question lama is if you could go anywhere in the world right now where would you go Cairo. yeah <laughs> so yeah so i don't know if listeners know this i'm i'm you you mentioned I work at the University of Manchester. I'm actually based in London, uh, so I'm in London at the moment. But my family, like most of my family, is uh, and friends are back in Cairo, so I would go to Cairo. And also, just for the sun, London is very gloomy today, and we have a storm coming in. So <laughs> yeah, give me that desert dry air. That's hot. I think about that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone back home is talking about how it's getting colder and freezing, their word, not mine. And yeah, to... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll leave you guys to look up the weather forecast on that. But you know, Lama, I won't yeah. because it's been a year yeah. since I moved back from Egypt where I was really lucky to live for a year. And it is depressing. So I will not be God. doing that comparison on a Sunday afternoon. Um, I will just say that right now. Oh, man. All right. So spring break, going to somewhere hot. Great. No, thanks so much, Lama, for just like taking part in the game, but also the whole conversation. Um, I know we, our questions range from everything from like our intrusive thoughts to some research. Thank you, research team, by the way because the intrusive thoughts are from Adira and myself. <laughs> but just thank you so much for going along with it and just bringing your all, which is an abundance, honestly, to be fair. Like Madira said, I have learned so much. 
Um, and yeah, we are just so grateful that you said yes, that you were on the podcast with us and just chatted to us for over an hour. So we're really excited to just hear from you and see everything else you'll be up to. Honestly, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so thank you. Thank you guys so much for, for having me, for inviting me. It's been, honestly, it's been my honor. Uh, I'm flattered and you guys have been so sweet and so generous and so good for my uh, uh, confidence and ego. <laughs> so thank you so, so much. And uh, yeah, I hope, I hope the listeners enjoy it. Oh, I'm sure they will. And we are cheerleaders at heart. So um, happy to do it. And with that, our dear listeners, thank you so much for listening. It has been a pleasure as always. My name is Madeira. And mine is Monica. And we will see you next time. Bye. As always, we would like to start by thanking our guests for coming on and having such a wonderful conversation with us. We would also like to thank the LSEID department and especially the LSEID communications and events team who have been helping us since we first started. Last but certainly not least, we would like to thank our team. Big, big thank you, because without them, this project wouldn't be possible. This episode was researched by Cindy Quach, Nora Nasser, Radhika Pradhan and Doris Huang. It was produced by Madeira Zender, Monica Batyang, and Can You Hear Us' assistant producer is Ragni Puri, who you may know from So We Heard. Big shout out as well to the social media team managed by Sanjana Sundar and Nida Ahmed. To our listeners, big thank you for tuning in and we'll catch